to Shot Reverse Shot, um, where this week um, we are getting kind of fairly specific, um, we're not talking about kind of films in general, we're talking generally about one film um, and its director, we're talking about Interstellar and its director Christopher Nolan, um, and just to forewarn you, um, we are going to talk in depth about the film, um, and that means we're going to spoil it, um, not like... If you've already seen it, we're not going to ruin it for you. Um, but if you haven't seen it, then we're going to talk about key plot points. Um, why are we talking about Interstellar, Ed? I mean, we did preview at the start of the year, didn't we? And it was one of our kind of uh, most anticipated films. Um, I saw it um, uh, last week. You saw it yesterday. Um, why are we talking about it now and perhaps not in our end-of-year roundup? Uh, because... I think mainly it's uh, me, because I sent you a message earlier in the day when we were talking about what we wanted to talk about in this week's episode, and I basically said that after watching Interstellar, it's pretty much all I could think about. (laughs) Mm. But it's not, in my opinion, it's not a good enough film that it will warrant our end-of-year discussion. I doubt it will make either of our top tens. Uh, But it's such a... uh, Like a lot of Christopher Nolan films, it's so interesting to talk about and it has so many things that can spark conversations that I feel we would be missing out if we didn't uh, talk about it. Yeah, I mean, um, it's proved kind of, uh, on the whole, it's been positively received, but um, elements of it have been very divisive. Um, And I certainly felt when I watched it, um, torn in between thinking this is, you know, a wonderfully grandiose piece of filmmaking to um, what am I watching? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I walked away with it saying essentially I'm exactly on the line between thinking it's great and thinking it's terrible, and uh, I'm I'm still not entirely certain. I think on the whole I didn't enjoy it as a film, but I did walk away thinking I'm glad that that exists because uh, I I can't think of another blockbuster that I've seen in recent times that is as uh, kind of batshit crazy in places as, as Interstellar gets. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, the kind of ambition of it, um, I'm going to intend this pun, that I'll just kind of warn you now. He does shoot for the moon. Mm. Does he hit it? Uh, well, I think he, he shoots right on past it. Uh, mm. he, hits a, he hits a moon, one of like Saturn's moons or something. Um, he certainly doesn't hit ours. Um, no. because there's there's an awful lot in Interstellar that doesn't work. There's an awful lot I found. There's a lot of inconsistencies um, tonally. Um, I think one of my biggest problems was um, when they get to the planet where they find Matt Damon, um, they, there's suddenly a, a kind of a, a fight and the film turns into a really kind of rubbish kind of sci-fi thriller, uh, action thriller. And the action scene's kind of really weird and feels completely out of place with what up to that point has been a bit philosophical um, and kind of a bit kind of, you know, deep space uh, kind of loneliness and kind of, uh, you know, reflectiveness on, on, on human nature and, and, and our existence. 
Um, and then all of a sudden there's this kind of quite clumsy fight on a, on a glacier that feels really out of place. It feels like it's in like mission, it should be a mission to Mars or Red Planet or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah it's, it's a film that I feel is torn in between the two things it wants to be. On the one hand, like you say, it has this idea about the nature of humanity and the question of whether or not humanity would be able to, in the face of looming ecological disaster, um, which in the film is brought by a mysterious uh, an unspecified kind of global c- catastrophe that uh, it's hinted at has drastically reduced the population and means that gradually all the crops are dying out one by one due to a mysterious blight and people are going to starve and then the ones that don't starve will probably suffocate to death from the lack of oxygen, from the lack of plants. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea of whether or not we would be able to band together and uh, save ourselves and act in the best interests of ourselves as a species as opposed to um, ourselves as individuals or even ourselves in terms of our broader families. And But also, so there's there's that idea that it's kind of dealing in the sort of stories that you used to see on Star Trek a lot um, and these kind of uh, quite weighty ideas told through sort of character, a story of characters and then suddenly you'll have big action adventure bits uh, and it, it kind of goes all a bit, you know, it goes from Star Trek, the Gene Roddenberry show to Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams movie and mm. uh, those two tones don't really uh, mesh and also it has uh, with the talking heads that open the film, which are revealed to be uh, of video monitors in um, the house that Matthew McConaughey's uh, character Coop grew up in, which is then used as a museum piece on a space station at the end of the film, uh, it also seems to be drawing inspiration from Ken Burns' The Dust Bowl, which you don't really see um, most science fiction films uh, taking as their inspiration. Mm, they, are, they are actually videos from Dust Bowl, aren't they? Uh, I think so, yeah, except for isn't... Um, Ellen Burstyn's uh, one. Yeah. yeah, apart from her bit. But yeah, the rest of them definitely seem to be uh, clips uh, taken from the Dust Bowl or uh, or people very uh, eerily mimicking the mm. things that people talk about in it. Oh, no, they are definitely clips from it. Oh, are they? It, yeah, oh, it, yeah. Said on, uh, it says on something, IMDb or Wikipedia, both oh. uh, hugely trustworthy bits of uh, uh, research material. Um uh, a lot of people had problems with um, the kind of some of the uh, the kind of more sentimental parts of it, um, mm. and some of those are are not helped by. I mean, I'm not going to say that Hans Zimmer um, his scores are often intrusive, um, but they are, um, <laughs> and um, uh, there really is uh, kind of brought to the fore in this film where there's some, a kind of a quiet moment and it's kind of slightly overplayed anyway. And then obviously, um, uh, the music kind of pushes it into melodrama. Um, but then again, when you think about what's good about the film, those sentimental scenes seem even more out of place. Yeah. I mean, I, I really liked, um, Hans Zimmer's music kind of in isolation, particularly, you know, when there would just be things like showing the, uh, the, their vessel going through space and it all gets a bit Koyanisquatsi. Mm. Uh, it's very, very heavily indebted to Philip Glass and I think that a lot of it was wonderful in terms of establishing mood. But uh, towards the end of the film when there was all that cross-cutting where on the one hand you have McConaughey and Anne Hathaway and 
uh, Matt Damon all trying to escape from that ice planet and uh, Matt Damon's trying to hijack the spaceship from them and on Earth Jessica Chastain who in the film is uh, Matthew McConaughey's grown-up daughter having a, a, a great deal of time having passed between him leaving and, uh, and uh, her time on Earth. Uh, is trying to figure out the mystery of all this weird uh, gravitational anomalies happening in their house. Uh, when it's jumping between the two and you have that organ music playing in the background, it all feels uh, very overwrought mm. uh, in a way that kind of works for the action sequences. Like, I've, I thought that the scene where after Matt Damon has uh, tried to get into the space station and he's accidentally blown himself up because the it de- depressurized and just devastated it and the only way they can save themselves is by getting the spaceship to spin around at the exact same speed as the space station and get on board Mm -hmm. Um, the music was really really effective as that but then it would cut back to earth and it would feel uh, just wildly inappropriate for that scene yeah Um, and the the film kind of makes great efforts uh, to get us to invest in the, uh, the characters and it's it's a common uh, criticism that's leveled at, uh, at Christopher Nolan um, that yeah, whilst his films are hugely enjoyable and uh, kind of what you'd really want from a, a blockbuster, they're kind of intelligent, uh, kind of propulsive uh, films made for adults. Um, his characters always seem, or well, leave a little bit to be desired. And Interstellar goes to great pains to make us care, um, but we don't really do we ultimately. No, uh, some of them, uh, some of the characters are just awful. Like, the one that sticks out to me as being really, really bad is the character that played by Casey Affleck, who is um, McConaughey's uh, son. Uh, just for anyone who's listening to this who hasn't seen the film but just wants to hear hear about it, uh, one of the big plot points in the film is that uh, Matthew McConaughey's uh, expedition through a wormhole to another part of the galaxy to try and find a suitable home world for Earth involves going on a planet that has really high gravity because it's right next to a black hole. And the idea is that whenever you're on that planet, because of the effect of gravity in the black hole, time travels more slowly. So you think that you're spending an hour on there, but everywhere else, seven years have, have passed. So mm. that's why there's this age disparity. And there's a moment when uh, Matthew McConaughey uh, gets back to the spaceship having escaped from this planet, which is nothing but water, and which is really cool because you have these just gargantuan waves that they have to try and escape. Um, and where uh, his skills from Surfer Dude come in, in great, ha- really in handy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets back to the space station where one of their crew has been there for 23 years just waiting for them in the, the one T-shirt that he owns. And um, he... Uh, McConaughey has all of these videos from his family that he starts watching and it's quite that's one of the moments I found most moving him having to see his family grow up through these videos that they've sent that he's missed out on all these years he's missed out on the birth of his first and the death of his first grandchild and all these things but when you actually have to spend any time with the Casey Affleck character he's just a dick who doesn't Mm. really do anything his main purpose in the film is to be an arsehole to his sister, played by Jessica Chastain, and also to be a bit of a slightly uh, limp and weak obstacle to her, because he throws her out of the house, she burns a bunch of his crops to get him out of the house, and then when she comes back and starts saying all of this uh, techno babble about how 
their dad is the ghost that she thought was the ghost in childhood. He just she just kind of hugs him, and the look on his face is like, "Oh, I accept this." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like uh, we talked when we did the episode on the Dark Knight Rises about how I think Christopher Nolan's great failings arise as he's he's this kind of big picture guy, and he will often take shortcuts in writing characters to get to whatever the uh, big effect he wants is. But sometimes that just means that characters have these arcs which make no sense because they're crammed into about five seconds of film. Mm. Uh, and that really struck me as well. I, kept, I walked away thinking that the best thing would have been if the, the Casey Affleck character had died during the 23 years that Matthew McConaughey had been away and that that was kind of his big uh, loss, especially because he didn't really think to get shit about it. So, you know, he cared about getting back to his daughter. Yeah, and given that like the actress who plays uh, young Murph um, is so good, mm, um, she's great. Uh, and you know, we also have the the fact that when McConaughey is on Earth with his kids, um, the son is like really assertive and kind of uh, you know, we know he's going to be a farmer um, by his kind of uh, school testing or whatever. But he seems to lose his brain cells and stays living in, in the same farm with the family, even though he's been told repeatedly that they're all dying of lung disease due to the mm. dust. Um, but he sticks there just so, well, just so Murph can have a house to return to later and the plot can move on. Yeah, there's just loads of things that feel obviously writerly, writerly or mm. they, they feel very contrived. Like, uh, let's like, delve into the ending now. The ending of the film involves... Matthew McConaughey uh, diving into a black hole. And when he gets into a black hole, he enters a tesseract, which is a a five-dimensional space in which he is able to uh, travel through time as uh, as represented by a three-dimensional space, and which showcases all the instances of Mirth's life within one room in their house, so that he can then set into motion the events that will lead him to be sent... Uh, out to space, but also provides her with the knowledge that will allow humanity to escape from Earth. Mm-hmm. And like that, that I have no problem with that sort of stuff because I'm I, I'm a sci-fi nerd and I love all sort of metaphysical stuff and the question of you know what would it be like if you could travel through time and things like that. So all that sort of stuff was just like gravy to me. I thought that was was really cool, but because that's something that takes place really really late in the game the first like 20 or 30 minutes of the film felt really, really contrived because of how little is explained. You know, it's all that idea of, oh, there are these very specific uh, gravitational anomalies which provide them with the coordinates to go to NORAD and meet Michael Caine, and then, oh, he happens to be the one guy who's the compiler of the ship and everything. Mm. And I don't know how that would have been better handled. I don't know what the way of making that not awkward and contrived is but the way it's handled in the film the first 30 or 40 minutes just really really drags because of that and you kind of wonder if if they ignored all that stuff and then still had him going back in time at the end to provide the message to his daughter it would have been just as effective and a lot less dull and it's kind of uh, tortuous uh, the film uh, all the more surprising that the film drags in the first 30 minutes is the fact that Unlike a lot of science fiction films, we are um, mercifully um, treated as adults and not kind of shown in the first uh, half an hour. Oh, look, it's the future. They've got hoverboards, etc., etc. It's all very kind of organically done. There's no kind of explaining uh, uh, like elaborate tech or trying to build the world out. 
which makes it even more crazy that it takes half an hour to get to NORAD or wherever it is um, to contrive that meeting of of people. Yeah, because all of the stuff, there's just kind of hints in the background, the idea that there are uh, these drones in the sky that are reconnaissance drones that seem to have uh, independent will of their own um, and uh, are kind of drawn to Earth by the aforementioned uh, gravitational anomalies or the idea that textbooks have been uh, redacted to say that the moon landing was faked uh, because people uh, don't want to deal with the idea of space travel when so much is going wrong on Earth and things like that. There's all these little details in the background that uh, kind of build a fascinating world. It reminded me a little bit of of Looper, not just because a lot of it takes place on a farm, um, Mm. in that Looper... Uh, builds the, the details of the, of its version of the future kind of in the background and doesn't really draw attention to them um, and just kind of lets them play out. And uh, I think that's a, that is a much better approach than just constantly pointing out all the ways that the future is different, uh, but instead trying to build the story on the things that are the same, which is ideas of family and love and the, the looming threat of annihilation and people's response to it. Yeah. It's just it's just quite surprising that, um, given that Christopher Nolan has has taken a lot of criticism for uh, particular failings in his films, he, he he's fallen kind of pretty much straight back into the, you know, the the the, the pitfall that's been set out for him. Um, and I think this is his ninth film, I think, possibly, yeah. um, and he kind of hasn't really changed, um, and. That's kind of weird. I mean, are we, are we going to kind of say that he can't write or direct or kind of bring us uh, engaging characters? Um, will he be perennially regarded as a uh, cold fish? Uh, I do think that the greatest, that the worst thing that could happen to him was being nominated for a writing Oscar for Memento, because I think that gave him the sense that he is a good writer, and uh, I think that he is a very, very good. He's very good at creating uh, propulsive action sequences, and when other people write the films, uh, they tend to be, or, or when he's working from pre existing source material, in the case of Insomnia or The Prestige, uh, I think he is prevented from falling into the traps of the fact that he kind of uh, messes up some of the small details and that kind of hurts the bigger picture that he's trying to tell. Mm. Um, and I think that he strikes me in a way, in, 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 so he's obviously not as, as a terminal a case as this, but he, he strikes me as someone like M. Night Shyamalan, who is, they're both great, te- uh, they're gre- both great in sort of technical terms and in terms of how they put together sequences, and they are obviously very talented uh, creators of entertainment, but they perhaps have got wrapped up in their own ideas as of being writer-directors, as opposed to the idea that you can still be the author of a work even if you didn't write the script. That's fucking harsh, dude. <laughs> you just compare Jonathan Nolan to M. Night Shyamalan. That is, I mean, I know Interstellar had its problems and, and <laughs> Nolan isn't one of my favourite directors by any stretch. But Jesus said, that's that's horrible. It's a continuum, I'm going to say. There's a, the, uh, Shyamalan is very much the far end of it and I don't think he'll ever pull out of the the uh, the skid that he's in. Mm. Um, 
I think that Nolan is because of the fact that he uh, he isn't an asshole as far as I can tell. He doesn't have an overwhelming ego that's led to him uh, destroying his key creative relationships in the way that Shyamalan did. Um, I think he has people around him who can, can uh, check his worst impulses a bit, but at the same time, he has so much success that there's only much there's only so much people can do in terms of uh, pointing away from the things that he's doing wrong. Mm. Okay, I'm going to uh, expound on the uh, Nolan is Shyamalan theory. Um, uh, Shyamalan was exposed quite quickly as a one-trick pony, and by yeah. the second time Pony did the trick, we realised that trick really wasn't that good. Um, I'm going to uh, call on someone called uh, the critic Armand White, um, who uh, in many ways is um, not worth listening to uh, because he's clearly uh, a troll. Uh, but in, in, in many ways, he also is worth listening to because sometimes uh, he speaks the truth uh, very occasionally. <laughs> um, and he said something in an interview, I remember um, saying that he said that Christopher Nolan doesn't chime with him because uh, essentially he's just uh, a confident trickster. Um and if you look at his films, um, you can probably kind of argue that. Most of his films are elaborate con jobs. Uh, and in a lot of his films, they're kind of uh, so... Uh, they're getting high on the smell of their own farts, basically. <laughs> and they're kind of so pleased with themselves. Inception is one of them. Um, and then to a lesser degree, uh, Memento and, um, and uh, following, um, you could say. Um, but then also you know, definitely the Batman films, uh, eventually... Uh, get high on their own supply, um, and you know you could say that you could say that he basically uh, wants to like project a big idea, and his his ideas are getting kind of exponentially bigger, um, but he just kind of almost collapses under its own cosmic weight. Um, now, it does that mean that like going back to Shyamalan is Nolan's trick just not that good? It's just more elaborate. Uh, I think that his his reach definitely exceeds his grasp. In right. that, I think he can he he often has a very clear idea that he wants to uh, project, such as something like Inception, where it's a very elaborate um, film about grief and about the idea of um, how grief can destroy you and your life and your relationships and all these things and and the the, the how on one level it can be very comforting to live in the past, on the other level it can just poison the future and the best thing to do is to let go. And that's what the final shot of of, um, Inception is about with the spinning top. The idea is not not meant to be this kind of big ambiguous ending. It's meant to say what's important is that uh, Cobb doesn't care anymore whether he lives in a dream or not. He's accepted that his his reality. And uh, I think that he often has these ideas, but then he perhaps doesn't have the tools to really expound on them in the, the most in the most uh, satisfying ways. He either goes all out for spectacle and uh, avoids the characters, uh, or, or messes up the characters. Um, actually, no, that's just what he does. <laughs> there isn't an either or. Um, sometimes he gets the balance. Uh, I, I'd say on, on several occasions he's got the balance perfectly right. I think The Dark Knight is probably the best example of doing it where he has the big spectacle of it being a Batman film and there's action, but using that he's able to create a framework in which he's able to 
do stuff about the uh, the, the surveillance state and the idea of anarchy versus uh, rigid control and things like that. Um, but the, at the same time, even on that film, I don't think he has a very clear vision of what he wants to say, uh, or he's not very good at articulating it, which is why those films are politically very slippery. Mm. And you can watch them all and you can read them as uh, like as a right-wing allegory in which Batman is Bush, or you can read it as a left-wing allegory in which they say, well, uh, you know, the things that he's doing is wrong, and, you know, maybe the, the Joker or maybe Bane has something worthwhile in what he's saying, and things like that. And I, I don't think that that is a intentional ambiguity. I think that's just a case that he uh, doesn't quite know what he wants to say. Um, and it reminds me of... Uh, something I read in the book, Five Came Back by Mark Harris, where he talks about uh, Frank Capra's work. And he says that the thing about Frank Capra's work is they uh, have that they have this kind of unfocused idea of what America is. And they often try to just kind of create a, a sense of good feeling about offending anyone. And I kind of feel that Nolan is the same way. He just wants to kind of put these big ideas out there without really taking a stand on them. Hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting, um, given that he finds himself in kind of the most um, enviable position of any filmmaker in that he has pretty much got full creative control and unlimited budget. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the, the definitely the thing about Interstellar that's kind of amazing to me is that... Uh, I can I can only think of like three or four filmmakers who could have got it made mm. um, as it as it happened. Spielberg, who obviously was originally going to direct it at one point until Nolan uh, decided to do it himself, or until Spielberg got uh, uh, distracted by the million other projects he has uh, to focus on, um, or James Cameron. And you know these are people who, through the uh, have been able to play the studio system in Hollywood to their advantage by making hugely popular films and being able to say, I've made you so many billions of dollars, let me make this passion project. And then, because of the reputation they have, those passion projects tend to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I think that, if nothing else, it reaffirms that he is kind of at the aggression on that, because he is someone who, you know, he's not like a, to go to our usual working boy, a Michael Bay, where uh, he can make anything he wants because all he wants to make is kind of crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if there isn't like uh, uh, you know occasionally he'll do a pain and game which is his passion project which is also shit but it has a uh, at least there's a, something else driving it beyond just the desire for money like usually he's just making stuff that will appeal to baser instincts you get a sense that uh, no one is aiming a little bit higher than that mm. speaking of aiming high um you said something on twitter today um which is i'm gonna gonna paraphrase you um, it was um, Nolan thinks he's Stanley Kubrick, but he's actually James Cameron. Um, I've got a kind of a little bit of a rebuttal to that in the sense that um, if we can level the criticism at, at Christopher Nolan that his films are often awe inspiring but um, don't connect on a human level, um, that is a criticism that, albeit to a lesser degree, has been levelled at Mr. Kubrick from time to time. That's very, that's very true. I'd also just like to say I was paraphrasing David Bax of the Battleship Detention podcast, so I, oh, won't, okay. take, I, won't, I won't take full uh, credit for that, uh, that insight. But um, yeah, I think that, that you can definitely say that that is true, but I would 
say that the, the, the difference between the two is that Kubrick, I don't think, tries to have it both ways. I don't think he's trying to make films that are warm. Whereas I get the feeling that uh, Nolan is trying to be both those things. He's trying to have films that are these kind of uh, coolly intellectual and have these big ideas, but he's also trying to uh, put in like character drama and and, and uh, characters you meant to like. Whereas I get the feeling, in with some exceptions, you know, something like with the exception of something like Pass of Glory, there's not a huge number of Kubrick films in which the characters are meant to be kind of warm and likable. Mm. They're meant to be the films are, are are designed as these kind of very cold and intellectual works and I think the problem that Nolan has is his skill set is, is uh, more geared towards big action spectacle the sort of thing that James Cameron does than it is towards the cold and clinical and you end up with this weird mishmash of the two and I, I just say that I don't think that that is a criticism to say that he is closer in his skill set to James Cameron than he is to Stanley Kubrick because I think that when James Cameron does what he does well it's fantastic um, but I think that uh, uh, Nolan perhaps has ideas about his station about what his work should be. Mm. Okay, that's fair. Um, I, speaking of James Cameron, and uh, that can be my jumping off point for this, I'm very pleased to to uh, report that Interstellar features um, a kind of a very very kind of minimal use of CGI and mm. a refreshing return to. Uh, practical effects models and uh, CGI as a uh, tool rather than uh, crutch. Yeah, the uh, certainly in terms of their locations and shooting as well. The fact that those glaciers are uh, real places that are obviously augmenting a little bit, but they are clearly on a, a, a real set, and they're all they are going out to real locations that look like that. I think that it adds a a physicality to it, the whole thing that you don't really see in uh, in a lot of sci-fi these days. Certainly not big budget sci-fi where the uh, driving force seems to be if you can use CGI to do something, then you should. Uh, it definitely feels like it, it. Definitely harkens back to um, sort of Spielberg's uh, earlier work and sci-fi films of the sixties uh, and seventies. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I watched. Um... I went to the cinema yesterday to see uh, Hunger Games three, and before the uh, before the the main feature started, um, we had some uh, coming attractions. And uh, two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey is uh, being re released uh, as part of the BFI's uh, Days of Fear and Wonder season, which I think we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, um, and just seeing that on the big screen, the trailer for it, um, you know, those effects still look absolutely incredible. Uh, the kind of models and the ships and and the interiors and stuff all look startling and um, Mr. Nolan has not been um, has not been uh, uh, well he's not been dishonest he said he said several times that it's a, a major influence but you know seeing that kind of stuff so shortly after kind of really brings it home that um, he is kind of uh, aping it in a way <laughs> aping it I'm sorry that is a pun that I didn't intend uh, for 2001 um uh, yeah, he's uh, kind of aping that style a little too closely. He definitely is in terms of the structure. I mm-hmm. think you can really see that in the the fact that it, for the most part, it is about um, uh, space travel and 
the physicality of it, and then there is a betrayal partway through, except instead of a computer, it's a man. Um, and also the idea that at the end, one of the characters goes into a sort of a, a heightened state of reality, um, or, into, or goes through a, a transcendent experience. Um, and it's, certainly when it gets to that point, it's very hard not to uh, not to draw the comparisons and uh, I, I, I do admire the film for its ambition and its attempt to take very heady scientific uh, processes uh, uh, scientific theories and make them into a story I think that uh, that's one of the, definitely one of the things that you get the sense if anyone else had tried to make the film would have been really toned down mm. um, in some cases that I think gets in the way of the action for example I can't remember the exact line, but there's a sequence where they're talking, the, the, the characters in the spaceship are, are talking about their problem, their more uh, physical problems of uh, not having enough fuel to complete their mission. And then suddenly, they one of the characters has to very dramatically say a lot of scientific jargon, which is never explained. And I find that that kind of uh, diffuses the uh, impact of that moment when people are just spouting out scientific jargon and they're not even bothering to explain it to the guy on the ship who isn't a theoretical physicist. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, kind of in that kind of crew um, and their kind of dynamic that they're all really kind of uh, high-ranking and super clever scientists and physicists, but McConaughey is the one that solves all the problems <laughs> pretty much on it. You've got Wes Bentley, and oh, by God, is it good to see Wes Bentley. It's been a long time since Soul Survivor. Um, uh, and, yeah, they'll kind of, like, be working out some kind of problem on a whiteboard, and then uh, McConaughey will be like, hey, why don't you try this? And they're like, ah, that's it, kid. Thanks for that. I don't know whether, like, all... Uh, um, you know, all kind of major uh, uh, kind of particle physicists um, just have some kind of like laconic Texan in their <laughs> thing just to kind of point out where they're going wrong all this time. Yeah, it reminded me a, a bit of the the thing that when Futurama did their Star Trek episode and they joked about how on Star Trek someone would say a load of scientific nonsense and then someone would use a very uh, a very earthy metaphor to explain it. Um, it kind of reminded me of that, in that you know, you know, these people just spout these things and then just one guy just goes, well, how about if we go around the black hole? And he's just like, oh yeah, the, the guy who doesn't really understand any of this just cuts through all the bullshit. Um, but without, still without really explaining what's going on. Yeah, it's um, sometimes you just need a layman to kind of uh, make sense of it all because, uh, you know, scientists can get lost in their own, you know, it's not all numbers and, and that. And, you know, theories, you just need a, a good old straight-talking, straight-shooter to come and uh, say, well, why don't we just go around it? <laughs> you know? um, my personal highlight of the film, um, not sure uh, what yours was, but um, uh, TARS, the robot, mm. um, which, A, was a brilliantly designed robot, um, you know, completely different to what you're used, used to seeing, um, and also uh, kind of a pretty blatant nod to the, uh, to the 2001 uh, uh, obelisk, I guess. What is what's it called in two thousand and one? Yeah, it's called the the obelisk. Yeah, um, kind of nod to that. But um, um, I kind of I, did, I recognised the voice, but I did couldn't place it. Um, and then I kind of hung on for the credits, and I didn't recognise the name. And then I looked it up, and it's uh, the actor is Bill Irwin, 
And I was like, oh, I don't should I know? And I looked him up. He's the guy who plays the dad in Rachel Getting Married. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, reading up about him, someone, an actor I'm not familiar with, he's just like a kind of a, an old vaudeville kind of, well, he's not vaudeville, obviously not that old, but a, kind of a comedian in that style. He used to hang around with like Steve Martin and all the, all the kind of greats. And uh, he kind of adds some much needed levity to uh, uh, to the film, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Uh, I, I do like his interaction with uh, with McConaughey's character and the constant talk about his various uh, emotional settings being at various percentages, humour at 90% and uh, honesty at 90% and things like that. I do enjoy that a lot. Uh, now that you say that he was a comedian who can with with that lot, I was wondering who you could slot in with that. I think that Stephen Wright would have been a very interesting one to <laughs> slot in, just completely deadpan. Uh, adding 20 minutes to the film's runtime by how he delivers his lines. And Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> that would have been that would have been pretty funny. Um, I would have uh, Bobcat Goldthwait uh, yeah. in, in the police academy mold, obviously, <laughs> um, would have been quite something. Uh, maybe a lot of urgency to his. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it probably would have. Uh, you know, that film is ripe to be uh, like YouTube videos to be. You know, add add extra actors. Uh, uh, kind of voices over the top of Tars's. Uh, <laughs> I think that would be great. Um, a lot of has been made, and this just pisses me off now. Right? Mm-hmm. People like getting in a tizzy about the scientific accuracy. Right. What the fuck is wrong with people? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about in the online criticism thing. Then, uh, for me, I don't really know, and I don't really care if the science is accurate. Um, to quote an old line from Mystery Science Theatre, it'll take a scientist to explain it, and I'm from the humanities. So mm. I can't really say for certain whether or not it's accurate. I'm sure there are things in it that aren't 100% correct, although Neil deGrasse Tyson has come out in favour of the film and said that you know a lot of the stuff in it you know makes sense from a, a lot of those sort of areas. But for me, I think that misses the point of what I think you know is wrong with the film, which is that a lot of the character stuff is just kind of sloppy and that you often have actors doing the best they can to make um, writing that's not really 100% there, that's maybe a couple of drafts away from being proper and perfect or uh, weird directorial choices. Like, I don't think that the cross-cutting he uses in the film that he used to such great effect in Inception really works in this story because it's not jumping between different levels of... Well, I guess it is... Is, is kind of jumping between different levels of reality because everyone's on different uh, timelines, but it still feels a little arbitrary when it's jumping between them trying to reconnect the space station and their life on the farm. Um, mm. I think the, 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 pro- the stuff that annoyed me about the film and that took me out of it wasn't, oh, I don't think this science makes sense. It was more just kind of like, why is that character doing that? Why? <laughs> Why? What are they talking about? And that sort of thing, which is, which is, uh, for me, a greater problem than whether or not a film makes sense in the strictest, you know, scientific sense. Like last year, Gravity, you know, the science and that has been torn to pieces uh, by so many people, but it's still a fun film. Yeah, and yeah, like it's, it's the classic thing. As long as a film doesn't bake its own kind of internal rules, yeah, at no point does McConaughey turn into a penguin. <laughs> um, you know that's okay. Um, like nothing. Like, you know, I just I, kind of people just drive me fucking nuts. Like it's science fiction. Like you, you're so hung up on the science bit of it. You know, you know, it's a fiction. The second bit of it is like just as important. Like 
Oh, God, does my fucking nut. Um, Christopher Nolan is uh, obviously kind of... I think I was a bit. I was kind of a bit more enamoured with this film than you were. Although uh, I think it's an, an impossible film to love, uh, and I find that generally about his his work, uh, they're kind of very easy to admire, but very very difficult to love. I, I um, would definitely say that I admire it. Yeah, um, yeah. but um, going through his filmography, um, there are some films that I kind of very nearly really like. <laughs> that can be uh, um, uh, kind of faint praise. Um, I think like his first two films, I thought were both excellent. Um, um, I didn't like the Prestige very much. Um, I just felt that was I got bored of the the tricks and turns and and ultimately oh, it was just some dude who looked like Hugh Jackman. Oh, great! <laughs> um, and then um, the Batman films, the first two I really liked. The, the third one I didn't like. Um, but like, ultimately, he's he's a pretty consistent uh, filmmaker, and his films, like you say, are always interesting. Yeah, I think that uh, he is someone who has certainly evolved in terms of his the, the scope of his films. You know, it's, it's uh, I I still think it's absolutely crazy that the guy that made Following directed three Batman films mm. because that was a film that was shot for a couple of grand on weekends uh, around the work of him and his friends or the the, the cast and the crew of it, mm-hmm. and then. When you consider that film was made in 1998, and then seven years later he directed Batman Begins, that's absolutely crazy to me. Um, and I think that he has certainly in, early on in his career, I think he had a a crutch of constantly doing things with uh, weird narratives. Mm-hmm. He definitely does that in Memento, and it's kind of the best in that. But even something like Batman Begins jumps around in time quite a bit, and uh, Prestige obviously does that a lot, and he abandon that with the Dark Knight and I feel that he had that's definitely a sign of an evolution but at the same time when his films are chronolog when he did use the jumbo the chron- chronology a lot <clears throat> the films tended to be uh, a lot I-, I tended to find them a bit more engaging just because there was a kind of a puzzle quality to them and you were trying to figure out where all the pieces were when as a uh, when he tries to tell purely linear stories they tend to get a little more uh, plodding, which is where I think, you know, with Inception, he kind of, he had that whole cross-cutting of four or five different events occurring at the same time approach to build a sense of momentum, even though the events aren't really related to each other in any, uh, in, in a, a kind of a physical way. And that, editing-wise, it's really uh, powerful, but it also feels exactly the same sort of trick that he used to have on his other films. And, mm. uh, with this film, like I say, I feel it's starting to weigh him down a little bit and he needs to evolve again and find something else to build his films around. Um, what's he doing next, um, Mr Nolan? Because he, he's one of those people, like the, the aforementioned uh, uh, directors we listed, plus probably Peter Jackson, who can do whatever they want. Mm. So uh, what is he up to? I believe the, the project that has been talked about for a very, very long time before um, before Interstellar and possibly even before the third Batman film was he wants to do a film about Howard Hawks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he actually had planned to make it in the early 2000s. Not Howard Hawks, Howard Hughes. Sorry, he wanted to do a film about Howard Hughes, but obviously The Aviator came out and uh, I think he, he is waiting for a significant amount of time to pass that people won't compare the two. 
and I get the feeling that uh, coming off of this, that'll probably be the, the thing he would look at next, unless uh, something else distracts him. Well, obviously, it's been 10 years since the Aviator came out, and I think that uh, that seems like it would be the next natural step after doing all these big spectacles to make something that's a little... That could still have a big scope, because obviously... Um, Howard Hughes' life was was kind of bigger than life and encompassed so many different areas, but uh, would still be a lot uh, less grand than sending people into space and through wormholes and into black holes. Mm. Yeah, I wonder how he'll handle that, because, I mean, um, Howard Hughes is someone who, his kind of life's been covered in in part in a lot of films, um, and, you know, he's one of the most famous people ever, like, do we need another film about Howard Hughes? I guess it depends on what angle they take. I, I would be very trepidatious about it if they decided that they were going to try and do his whole life because that almost never works. <laughs> the, you know, I, I watched uh, The Theory of Everything, uh, the Stephen Hawking biopic the other day, and that has some fantastic acting in it, but also because it encompasses his entire life it very quickly just becomes a succession of scenes of big events in his life with mm. no real impact between them. Uh, the only part of it that really engaged me was the first half an hour where it was about him as a young man in the early stages of his uh, disease. And I thought that on its own would have made a compelling film and then I remembered that it already did when it started Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of feel that if they could find a particular event in Howard Hughes' life to focus on, or a particular, you know, just like a, a maybe a two or three year span or him working on a particular project, it could be very, they could drill down and make it very fascinating. If they tried to make it panoramic and encompass too much, it would just be a standard biopic. Yeah, I think I'd uh, watch a Nolan film where he focused on that part of Howard Hughes' life when he just sat in a cinema room all day completely naked, just with a hanky over his dick, uh, with his really long fingernails, watching the same film like over and over again. I think maybe that would be a challenge for Mr Nolan, see if he, he can uh, bring the character out in that. Yeah, get get DiCaprio back. <laughs> yeah. and Getting back in those, that piss jar filled room. Yeah, and it will still look exactly the same, Leonardo DiCaprio, who, uh, I, you know, I'm starting to think he's a vampire. <laughs> I mean, yeah. no one's saying it, but like he is, he is. There must be a picture in his attic of him that is kind of like slowly aging because uh, that that's not natural. I think he's a Highlander. <laughs> yeah, he must be. Speaking of which, they said they were going to um, reboot Highlander with uh, Tom Cruise is is their number one choice for reboot. Um, that was announced this week. That's a terrible idea, isn't it? Yeah, if they want to go for anyone, they should go for Paul Rudd, who genuinely hasn't aged. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Pharrell Williams as well. Uh, not strictly an actor, but um, uh, you know he hasn't aged a day. I swear. Um, I maybe I think uh, we're just uh, naming people who actually are Highlanders, and at night they have massive sword fights in Hollywood. Mm, or they're Scientologists who like drink the the blood of choir boys. Um, <laughs> I think I, th- I think I'm getting Scientologists confused with someone else. But anyway. Um, uh, from Scientologists to Science, <laughs> there you go, That's that can be our subtitle um, uh, for this episode. But yeah, that that was us on Interstellar and, and Christopher Nolan, um, who my wife genuinely asked me earlier, was he related to the Nolan sisters? <laughs> um, and I had to say no immediately, but I thought, is he? Hmm, 
who knows? Uh, but I don't think he is. Uh, otherwise, you know, if he was, a Mr. and Mrs. Nolan must be very proud of their brood. Um, but yeah, that's him there. We're going to come back next week uh, back to the familiar turf uh, of the alternate 100, which we'll wrap up in the next couple of weeks before Christmas and kind of wind down the year for us Um, so until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me